Well, this morning we begin our work through the epistle from Jude. You can find it in your bulletin. And I was just coming from outside. The, the sound this morning when we began was terrific. I think it's changing a little bit now, but um, now it sounds terrific. I think it does. So uh, if you have problems, wow, there we go. If you have problems, bear with us, patiently wait. I think that things will be worked out in the next few minutes. Um, the epistle from Jude, it's printed in your bulletins. Uh, Jude 1 through 2, uh, if you'd please stand for the reading of God's word. The next four weeks will be in the book of Jude, and if you were reading the email or getting ready for the service this morning, and you thought, man, we're doing two chapters in the book of Jude, that's going to be crazy. Um, Jude is only one chapter, so we're talking about verses here. So uh, I know a few people asked me that this week, and I said, your Bible knowledge is lacking. Uh, Jude has one chapter, we're doing verses one through two today, another five verses next week. The following week, a handful of verses will end it uh, May 15th. And then uh, as I'm gone, you'll be getting, uh, by looking at the book of 1 Peter the entire summer. So this is the epistle from Jude. Let's read the first two verses aloud. This is the word of God through the mouth of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy peace, and love be multiplied to you. Would you please be seated, and then would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we ask this morning as we begin looking at this very short epistle, we ask that you would use it in your church to glorify yourself, to draw us to yourself, to make us more like your son. We pray, Lord God, that you would multiply peace, mercy, and love among us. That you would prepare us, Lord God, for the adversity and the conflict that we might face in the coming days, weeks, months, and years as a church and as followers of you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and we ask, Lord, that you would give us great assurance in him who has saved us. It is in your name we ask all these things. Amen. Well, three years ago, this very week, I was coaching my last volleyball game at Liberty, for the Liberty men's volleyball team. And I think the story of the last game I coached actually will help very well to introduce the epistle that we begin looking at this morning. Three years ago this week, we were playing in the national championships we were in the semifinal match, and as a team, it was everything that we would have wanted. We were facing our arch nemesis, our great rival, the University of Illinois. We had a long rivalry. We did not like them. They hated us. There was bad blood between the two teams, and we faced off in the semifinals to see who would go to play the national championship match. About halfway through the match, as we were playing, going back and forth, they were scoring a point, we were scoring a point, a player from the University of Illinois over on the other side of the court went to go try to get a ball that had moved off of the court into the stands, and he dove off the court into the front row of the stands, and he leveled my seven-year-old son who was sitting there in the front row of the stands, clobbered him. Six foot three, 220-pound man, into the stands, levels my son. 
and I'm sitting on the bench on the other side, and my son just starts bawling, and I'm wondering if he's hurt and what's going on. Another player at the same time from the University of Illinois goes to the sideline to help his friend out of the stands, and he says to my wife, who is there consoling my son, he says to her, lady, keep your son off the court. The wrong thing to say at the moment, right? Wrong thing to say. Well, immediately, my family sitting in the stands and the friends who were there, they get up out of their seats as if they're ready to fight with these college students, and a shouting match ensues. The bench clears. I stand up and I move onto the court. The refs are blowing their whistles. Thankfully, uh, uh, level heads prevailed that day, okay? But the adrenaline that I felt, I'm sure my family felt, The rush of urgency that we felt at the moment captures very well the nature of Jude's letter to the Christian church, okay? The letter that Jude writes to the church is the only letter in the New Testament that from the beginning to the end is a call to fight. We will see this in verse 3 when he says, I call for you to contend for the faith that was once delivered unto you. The word contend is the Greek word agonizomai, from which we get agonize, okay? You are to fight. You are to endure for the faith that was once delivered unto you. And so for the next four weeks, as we look at Jude, we will be looking at a letter written to the church calling us to contend for the faith that was once delivered unto us. And so we'll get the opportunity to talk about what it looks like for the church to be called into conflict and adversity. That will be the next four weeks. But before we get there, I want to give a brief introduction to this epistle. So you know all what's happening and who's writing and at what time and to whom Jude is writing. So I want to begin with where we left off last week with the cross. We finished the gospel of Luke. Jesus died on the cross, he was resurrected, and at the end of Luke, Luke, Luke briefly mentions his ascension. And so the up arrow signifies the ascension of Jesus. He ascends into heaven, and at the end of the Gospel of Luke, and the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, we see a transition that happens where Jesus hands off the work of the church to his followers. Immediately, follow, I'll go to the right, immediately following this, we have in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, a description of the followers of Jesus at that moment, the ones to whom he's entrusting the work of the church. Acts 1, 14 says it was to the apostles, it was to the women who followed him, to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and then there's a fourth category in Acts 1, 14, Kind of the oddball that stands out in Acts 1 is the siblings of Jesus. Those are the ones mentioned in verse 14. Now that's odd for multiple reasons, not the least of which is that in John chapter 7, we're told that the siblings of Jesus did not believe in him, okay? That they wanted nothing to do with the idea that this was the Messiah. Somewhere between John 7 and Acts chapter 1, The siblings of Jesus are convinced that he is the Savior, that he is God, and they go from a disdain of Jesus in John 7 to in Acts 1, worshiping him, okay, wanting to follow him. That's what happens in Acts 1. Now, Matthew 13 tells us, Matthew 13 says that there were four brothers of Jesus. 
They were James, Jude, Joseph, and Simon. Okay? Four brothers of Jesus. These are the ones who follow him in Acts 1. They're entrusted at that point with leadership of the church, with the apostles, and those who are also followers of the Lord Jesus, and they carry on the ministry from Acts 1. Okay? If we're putting dates on it, the death and resurrection of Jesus somewhere around the year A.D. 30. Acts 1 is shortly after. The siblings of Jesus become uh, leaders in the church, and James especially is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. We see him in very prominent roles in the New Testament, the historical books, the Gospels, and the epistles, as a leader in the church in Jerusalem, along with Peter, the apostle. So Peter and James become prominent leaders in the church. One point that we see them playing a prominent role is Acts 15. Okay, that's the Jerusalem council. That's when circumcision's being debated. And Acts 15 happens in A.D. 48, some 15 years after Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, into heaven. At the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, Peter and James play a very prominent role in the church in Jerusalem. Okay, if you remember during this time, this is after Paul's first missionary journey. It's before his second missionary journey, and Paul then becomes an instrumental uh, part of the early church at this point. Acts 15 is where we see James playing a prominent role, and then we move forward. One other event I'll mention is that Peter writes his two epistles. 1 Peter and 2 Peter. 2 Peter is written somewhere around the year A.D. 60. Okay? So we fast forward from 48 to the writing of Peter's two epistles. I mentioned James and Peter because they're both massively influential in Jude. All right? James is Jude's brother. He begins writing this letter saying, I'm Jude, the brother of James. Peter is instrumental because if you pick up a good commentary, they will tell you, Approximately three-quarters of Jude's entire letter is borrowed from 2 Peter, okay? Jude was well aware of 2 Peter, all right? Now, here's the correlation, the relationship. It's very simple. Peter writes 2 Peter as a warning to the church that false teachers are wanting to infiltrate, okay? He says to them, the false teachers are coming. They want to infiltrate the church, and they want to take over and subject the church to a false teaching. So he warns them. Jude is writing saying, I'm not warning you about the false teachers that are coming. They're there. They have arrived. What Peter warned about has now happened. And so Jude picks up on 2 Peter, quoting in his warning, but now addressing the church on how they're to deal with the false teachers that have entered in the church. This happens, the letter of Jude, sometime in the late 60s, okay? Jude, the brother of Jesus, writes the letter to the church about the false teachers who have now infiltrated the church. Here's what we're going to see this morning. The whole letter is exhorting the church to contend against the false teachers in the church. This morning, in the introduction to this letter in Jude, we're going to see what I would call preparing for the adversity, Okay? This is Jude's way in the first two verses of saying, here's what you do in preparation for the conflict that you are about to face. Okay? Three things, they're written in the insert in your bulletin. We need to know what we're to do. We're need to, we need to know who we are. And we need to know what we need. Okay? 
Those three things all can be found in the introduction this morning. First of all, what we're to do. I don't know about you, but when you've ever faced adversity or conflict, there's a really big question about what is my role in this? What am I to do? Should I say something? Should I not say something? Am I more inclined to conflict? Am I afraid of conflict? What is my role? Do I lead the fight? Do I step back? How do I engage myself in the adversity that is facing me? And we often get bogged down or consumed with questions of what we're to do in the face of adversity and conflict. Now, this is very interesting. I think that Jude simplifies it for us, and he simplifies it in this way. He introduces himself by saying, I am Jude, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am Jude, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's significant if you think about it like this. Paul and Peter also called themselves servants of the Lord Jesus. But you know why it's significant for Jude? Because Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. Okay? Jude's the half-brother of Jesus. And instead of identifying himself as Jude, the brother of Jesus, would have, which would have gotten him a lot of street credit uh, with the church, I think, they would have immediately listened to him. He doesn't identify as the brother of Jesus. He identifies himself as the servant of Jesus. Okay? If you want to look for evidence in the New Testament church that Jesus was who he said he was, look no further than the siblings of Jesus who are converted. They have faith in him, and they now identify as the servants of Jesus. That's a big deal. I say that to you this morning because I believe when we face adversity and conflict, we should know, first of all, as we prepare for that, that what we're to do is actually very simple. We're to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. That will actually help us to answer a whole host of questions that face us in the midst of that adversity. Am I too conflict-oriented? Am I afraid of, of people? Do I not want to enter into conflict even when it's good? Well, all those questions will be challenged with this to-do, that is, we're to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes, by serving the Lord Jesus Christ, we actually have to step away from conflict and seek peace. Because that's what it means to serve the Lord Jesus in the midst of that adversity. Sometimes in the, in the midst of the adversity that we want to avoid, sometimes serving the Lord Jesus Christ means we enter into that conflict, okay, for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Serving the Lord Jesus Christ basically means this, okay? It is the biblical word doulos that means a slave or a servant, one who forfeits their own identity and takes on the identity and the will of another. That is basically what it means, okay? In the midst of our conflict, then, that means what we're doing is simply seeking the glory and the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can ask ourselves in every situation of adversity and conflict, not what do I feel like doing right now, but what would bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus? That's what it means to be a servant of Christ. So when you and I face adversity and conflict, we ought to ask that question. It ought to prepare us for the conflict that we face in our own lives, okay? Here's the second thing. We're going to tie this all together at the end, what this means for our own adversity and conflict. Second of all, preparing for adversity and conflict, we have to answer the question, who we are. That's how we prepare. What is our identity? Have you ever thought about this? Who actually are we? We're a group of people who dress up on a Sunday morning. We gather together in a gym, okay? We have various things that we share in common, uh, we have demographic things that we have in common, but we're not simply a group of people who like each other and we say, I just want to hang out with those people on a Sunday morning. 
not simply a group of people who have the same political commitment, the same desires in life. We don't have the same family size. Those aren't the things that bind us together. There is something else that binds this, people, this group of people together, and the Bible describes that in certain ways. I would point you to Jude's description this morning. You see, Jude says he writes to a group of people in the second half of verse 1, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That is his description of the identity of the church. That is the thing which sets us apart from the rest of the world. Those who are called, those who are beloved in God the Father, and those who are kept for Jesus Christ. This is our identity. It's good for us to be reminded of this in the face of preparing for adversity and conflict. Now let me tell you, Jude's description of who we are, called beloved and kept, that is actually, I think, a summary of the entire Christian life. Okay? It's a summary of the entire Christian life. You can think of this. These three words represent both the beginning of our identity in Christ, the continuation of, and the finality of. Okay? The entire gambit of who we are in Christ is represented there in Jude's words. Theologians have often referred to this as the ordo salutis. Have you ever heard that phrase, the ordo salutis? It is the Latin phrase for the order of salvation. It includes our, our glorification and our sanctification and our justification and our adoption. It includes our call and predestination. All of the things that God does in the economy of redemption to save us out of darkness into light and to secure a people for himself for all of eternity are summarized in that phrase. Now, think about this, okay? Called, beloved, and kept. Beloved in God is the beginning. You are beloved in God since before the foundation of the earth. Sometimes we tend to think of how God loves us as beginning with the death of Christ. Christ dies, and then God loves us. But the Bible says that he loved us from before the foundation of the earth. That is to say, when we begin reading Genesis 1-1, that before that, God loved us. Okay, In eternity past, he desired to set his affection upon a people, and he said, these will be my people. And he called us by name, and he desired to make us his people. Isn't that beautiful? You sit and think about that for a certain amount of time, you will be consumed with the beauty of God's affection for us, how he has loved us. Beloved in God is before the foundation of the earth. Called, the phrase that Jude used there, called, is the way we experience it in this world. He loved us, and then what does he do? He works in the course of time to call us. He puts an outward call in our lives through the preaching of God's word, and he begins an inward call in our hearts that the Holy Spirit begins to work in dead people who have no desire for righteousness, who did not want the things of God, and he begins to work in our hearts that we would be inclined to him that we would be drawn to him, and that we would seek him, okay? That's the call of God. So beloved, called, and then kept. In some versions of the English, the actual Greek word is translated as preserved. I think that's a better, a better translation of the Greek word, preserved for Jesus Christ. Those who are beloved before the foundation of the earth, called in the course of time, and those who are now preserved for the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? That's, that's who we are. When we gather together on a Sunday morning, when we identify ourselves as a particular church, when we say we are Christians who gather to worship the Lord God, we're those who are beloved, called, and kept for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's going to be important as we think about preparing 
for adversity and conflict, okay? Again, we'll come back to that at the end. That's who we are. And then finally, Jude introduces, as we prepare for adversity and conflict, he introduces, third, what we need, okay? You look at what he says in verse 2. As he's writing this letter to a group of Christians, he's exhorting to contend for the faith. He says to them, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now let me say, that's a significant phrase. Jude is the only writer of New Testament epistles who doesn't greet these Christians with the word grace. So say, Jude leaves out grace, but he's also the only writer who introduces a word in his greeting that no other writer of the epistles does, and that's the word love. Okay? It's amazing, right? Jude's the only one to greet the Christians with love. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, there's a number of things we could say about that phrase, but let me just ask you a question. Is there anything that stands out to you as odd about what Jude just said? Anything that stands out to you as odd? Maybe it doesn't stand out at first, but let me just point it out. These three words, I think, are the last three things that someone who's being exhorted to fight and contend for the faith actually is looking for. Okay, if I was writing a letter to a group of Christians that I was saying, prepare for the battle, it's coming, I would probably say, make courage, bravery, and I don't know, honor, or energy, or sustenance, I don't know, three phrases that would prepare them for the fight that they're about to endure. But Jude says to the Christians that he's exhorting to fight the battle, he says to them, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. I was thinking about it this past week. I was thinking about how can I illustrate that point. And he, I think this will maybe stick in your minds better. I want you to think of it like this. The best picture I can think of uh, to articulate visibly what a fight should look like would be a boxing match, okay? So can you imagine a boxing match where you're boxing and you're sitting in your corner and your coach comes over to you and you're preparing for the next round and the coach says, all right, here's what I want you to do. Okay, that's my coach voice. Here's what I want you to do when you get out there and you're in the boxing ring. I want you to hit him with a little bit of mercy. And then I want you to counter with a little bit of peace. And I want you to finish him off with a little bit of love. Okay? Could you imagine? You would fire your boxing coach, right? That would be terrible pep talk. That's not what I want to hear as I'm preparing for the battle, as I'm in the midst of the urgent, uh, adrenaline-pumping moment where I'm going into conflict and adversity. Not what I want to hear, okay? But Jude says to the church that he's now exhorting to fight the good fight, to contend with false teachers, he says to them, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, okay? In a second, when we talk about how this all ties together, you'll see how that's actually what we need in the midst of adversity and conflict. It's, it's actually what we need. But here's, here's how this introduction, I think, brings together and introduces this whole epistle that Jude writes. Why, when we prepare for conflict, when we enter into adversity, and let me tell you, you can think of this in a broad variety of ways. You may think, just as Jude writes to the church who has false teacher, teachers in their midst, you may think of the battles that need to be fought within the church context. And there are battles that need to be fought. There are battles that inv invariably, inevitably, this church and other churches will face 
in the years ahead, okay? So we prepare for those types of conflicts and adversities. But there are also the battles that we fight in our everyday lives, the adversity and the conflict that we face as Christians. I believe Jude's letter can help prepare us for all of that, okay? When you think about adversity and conflict, when you think about battles that must be fought in life, why is it that Jude would, pre- would prepare the church with these three things? What we're to do, who we are, and what we need. Why would you do that? Why would he go there? Why are these three things important for the introduction of this letter? Well, I've written it and insert it in your bulletin. Here's why. Because adversity challenges our identity. It can change our actions. And it can lead us into sin. Okay? Adversity and conflict challenges our identity, it can change our actions, and it can lead us into sin if we're not careful. It challenges our identity, doesn't it? Whenever we enter into adversity and conflict, you know what usually guides our decision making? What are people going to think of me? What's the result going to be? How am I going to be looked at? Am I going to lose friends? What's going to be the outcome on the other end, right? Those are the things that often guide our decision-making. Those are identity questions. Who will I be on the other end of this? How will this impact me? How will it affect me? And that, if that's our guiding principle when we enter into adversity and conflict, we will inevitably make the wrong decision, okay? We will make decisions based upon what's most comfortable for us. What's the outcome that we think is most pleasurable, most desirable, As Jude writes to a church who is contending for the faith once delivered to them, as they're entering into this disagreement and they're engaging false teachers who need to be rooted out of the church, he says to them, first of all, it's very simple. What's your identity in Christ? It's that you're beloved, called, and you're kept for Christ Jesus. That identity is simple, yet it needs to be at the forefront of our minds when we enter into conflict and adversity. There's a second point in Jude's introduction. Okay, that is who we are. If that's who we are and we're firm in that and we're fixed in that, we're not so much consumed with, well, how's this going to go? What are people going to think of me? Uh, How many friends will I have on the other end? Okay, how popular or not popular will I be? The second thing that adversity and conflict can do, it can change our actions, all right? We can say, and uh, when we're not in the midst of adversity and conflict, we can say, you know, if I face a problem like this, here's what I would do. But when the rubber meets the road and we're faced with actual adversity and conflict, we tend to change the things that we once were convinced of or convicted of. We tend to change our actions, whether it's by fear of man, which is the, I, I want people to be happy, I want people to like me and I make a decision based upon that, or whether it's by uh, we have a desire to have conflict and we're just conflict-oriented, we tend to change our actions based on the situation that we confront. And what I tell you this morning is Jude introduces himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he would exhort us to do the same because what we're to do is very simple. We are to be servants of Jesus. We're to serve him in the midst to seek his glory and to seek his honor in whatever adversity and conflict faces us. But finally, as I mentioned just earlier, finally, adversity and conflict can draw us into sin, okay? It can move us into a very sinful posture if we're not careful. I often tell my children, and sometimes I give this advice to other people, but I often tell my children, you have to be very careful to differentiate between what you're doing and how you're doing it and why you're doing it. 
okay, what you're doing, how you're doing it, and why you're doing it. And let me give you a good example from my children, okay? Oftentimes, one of my children will antagonize the other, okay? They'll antagonize the other, and what they're doing is wrong, but the other one, wanting to deal with the what, it's a good what, okay, wanting to make wrong things right, will deal wrongly in the how and the why, okay? That is, the other one will say, you're such a fool, okay? Nobody likes you. Nobody likes it when you do that. Why would you do that? And they'll raise their voice and they'll get angry. That's the how and the why. And I will sit down with them and I will say, listen, the what was right. You, you were right that what they did to you was wrong. But the how you did it and the why you did it in your heart led you into sin. And by leading you into sin, it stole the glory from God, okay? When we enter into adversity and conflict, we must be careful that what we're doing doesn't overshadow how we're doing it and why we're doing it, okay? That is to say we can lead a crusade of what we believe is a righteous crusade, entering into conflict with another, but we can sin against them and we can steal the glory from God by how we do it and why we do it. So we have to watch our heart. We have to be careful. It's a very dangerous moment of temptation for us in the midst of adversity and conflict. This is why Jude writes to the church and he says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. May it be multiplied to you because as we enter into adversity and conflict, we need lots of mercy, peace, and love. If we're to protect our own hearts, if we're to guard ourselves as we enter into the conflict, if we're to be careful for the sake of the glory of the Lord God, we need these things to be multiplied in us. It is why we need these things that aren't fighting words, that appear to be not an introduction to a letter contending for the faith. We need the Lord Jesus Christ to bless and multiply to us uh, more peace, more mercy, and more love to stand firm in our convictions and steadfast in our commitments and yet not have our hearts led to sin, not to be deceived into hating those that we must contend with. That's the exhortation that Jude would give to the church. How many of us have waged war or entered into conflict or adversity with another brother or sister in Christ or even with a false teacher, with our neighbors, with our family, and have considered ourselves to be doing the right thing, but haven't guarded our hearts against the sin, and have let it inadvertently consume us, justifying it in the name of doing what is right, okay? I think we've all done that. I know I have. This is how Jude would exhort the Christians that he writes to, that they would contend for the faith, that they would do it vigorously, with zeal and energy, that's what's coming up in the letter, but that they would also do it guarding their own hearts. That mercy, peace, and love would be multiplied to them. And so as a church, as we prepare to embark on the short letter of Jude, this is our, our prayer this morning. Uh, I don't think that we have much adversity and conflict as a church, at least at this moment, but the Lord knows the things that are coming in the future. And so we pray that the Lord God, in the midst of peaceful times and calm times, that the Lord God would multiply these things to our hearts, that we would prepare ourselves for the battles 
and the fights that would come in the future, that we would enter into them for the glory of God, serving the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would not shy away when necessary, that we would seek peace, mercy, and love when necessary, and that God would guard our hearts and prepare us for the day when we enter into that conflict. May he prepare our hearts and protect our minds that we would faithfully serve him. And I'll end with Peter's lines at the end of Second Peter. Many of the same lines that Jude barred for his letter. When Peter said, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would continue your work among your people. And we thank you for this letter from Jude, the brother of Jesus, but more importantly, the servant of Jesus. We ask, Lord God, that you would exhort us and you would lead us, that our identity in you would be clear, that we would be firmly rooted, knowing that we are loved, called, and kept, that we would see this call to be servants of the Lord Jesus, and that mercy, peace, and love would be multiplied to us. That whatever the future holds, whatever adversity and conflict we face in the coming days, months, and years, that you would prepare us, that we would be ready, and we would be able, that you would be glorified through our actions and words, that the church would be protected by your spirit, that your son would be lifted up, and that you, O oh God, would receive the glory and the honor. We thank you and we praise you this morning. We ask that you would receive the glory, honor, and praise through Jesus Christ, your Son, and our Savior. We ask this in his name. Amen.